In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. The last time I was in this pulpit preaching, Mother Judith was our interim rector. Lots has happened since then. I've been at discernment in the time as to whether I might have a call to preach in the ordained ministry. I've appreciated your thoughts and your prayers in support through this. Hopefully today, God will speak to us as we reflect on the text of this rich gospel today. We've had three passes at this sermon, uh, at this scripture, thanks to our lectionary. Three weeks ago, Mother Becca reminded us of Jesus' bread in the feeding of the 5,000. Two weeks ago, Kelly called our attention to God's abundance and the hospitality that the living bread brings. And last week, Steve talked about cake in scripture. And as we said goodbye to Laura Goodwin, talked about the nourishing and sustaining presence of God in bread for us. All of these are part of John chapter 6 and Jesus' extended sermon on the bread of life, and I'll take a pass at it too. I begin by asking you a question. What is the sweetest thing that you know? And by sweet, I mean on the tongue, <laughs> to the lips. I'm talking what you eat. Get that in your head and think about it, what it is, who, was sur who surrounded it, and so forth. And now I'll tell you my sweetest thing. The sweetest thing I know is guava jelly. I was hooked on my grandma's homemade guava jelly from early on. When we visited her home in Fort Lauderdale, I would see a veritable garden of delights. Mangoes, avocados, key limes, coconuts, and ladyfinger bananas. But it was the guava plant right next to the mailbox that I came to love above all. After it had been picked, boiled, strained, sugar added, poured, she would cap it with paraffin wax to keep it fresh in the jar. When I opened the jar and licked the wax, I was in sweet heaven. That is the sweetest thing that I know. And what made it sweet was not just the sugar, but the person behind it and all the love that had gone into it. I'm an occasional poet, not that great, but I do put my hand to it from time to time. And I tried to write a poem, I never finished, about that jelly. And the poem goes like this. How much love in a jelly jar? Grandma knows it overflows. 
Part of the sweetness was not just the jelly, but the love behind it. A psychologist might point out, this is what we call associational pleasure. We all have comfort food. These are the dishes that take us to places and people we remember. Advertisers try to capitalize on this. They want to associate their brand of hot dogs with the baseball park you went to as a kid, or the popcorn in the movie theater, or the pizza palace that you love, or the bug juice that your mom got for you after picking you up from school. For me, guava jelly is the sweetest thing. I know because it's jam-packed with memories. And I'm guessing that the sweetest thing that you thought of also had some of those ties. Let's turn our attention now to the gospel today and see how we can see, use our food associations to better understand Jesus and his food associations. Jesus wants certain foods tied to him, bread and wine. They're common everyday things that Jesus wants to use to get through to us. He challenges those who are seeking bread from him not to miss the real bread. And then he uncorks one of those I am statements that John loves so much. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. But in our reading today, we have yet another variation. I am the living bread. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. How can we unpack this saying? When I was preparing for this, my first thought was a bad one, and I'll share it with you <laughs> anyway. The Pillsbury Doughboy. Yeah, he's bread, he's alive, you know, but maybe it's not a good image of Jesus. And so I thought some harder, um, and the image that kept coming to me again and again is mother's milk. It's alive. It comes from the life of the mother. It nourishes and sustains like bread. And it's intimately tied to the link between child and mother. The bread that Jesus gives us is the living bread, and he's giving himself just as a mother gives of herself. And the question that I'd like you to ponder today, are you hungry? for the bread of life. Are you hungry for life? Are you hungry for the love of Jesus? Why are you hungry? Or perhaps 
What dulls your appetite? What can we do? I made a discovery during the pandemic. Two discoveries, actually. Um, before the pandemic, I would often say this. I could never go to a church that didn't have communion every Sunday. Though I never said this, I also thought, and I could never go to church on TV. <laughs> I want to be there, doggone it. Well, guess what? I did both. I went to church on TV, and I went to a church that didn't have communion each Sunday. Was not the best, not the ideal, perhaps, but I was so hungry, I got fed anyway. As Steve said in his last sermons, perhaps we need to keep our heads on a swivel, looking for strength and nourishment wherever we could find it in the ministry of the Word being read, in our knowledge of the body of Christ as one another. And so I ask you to reflect again, do you need to do anything to strengthen your appetite, your hunger for this living bread? Now having raised the question about your hunger for God, I'm going to switch topics, and I'm going to talk about Jesus' hunger. In Luke's gospel, Jesus said to the apostles, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you before my suffering. I have eagerly desired. The King James translates it rather awkwardly, but close to the Greek, when it translated it, when it translated it this way, with desire, I desire to eat with you. It's awkward language because it's a strong feeling. A feeling of such strong desire, it strains the language to talk about. Here's the thing. Jesus is hungry for you hungry to sit down with you. He wants you to come to his table and to eat and to partake of the bread of life. Perhaps this will help you see your own hunger for God in a new light, in the light of God's hunger for you. To help illuminate this, I want to call on St. Julian of Norwich, a 12th century English saint that I have come to love and admire. She is the first woman spiritual writer to write in the English language. And she has some wonderful things to teach us. However, she is an acquired taste. Some of the saints are strange and perhaps even off-putting in their ways, and she's among them. Julian asked many things for God, but two things stand out. The first is she asked to have 
a sickness near unto death. That would be pretty low on my list of things to ask from God, but yep, she's a little weird, and maybe some of the psychologists or the physicians are saying, that's pathological, wanting a sickness near death. She wants it so she could understand Christ's death. And the second request is she wants to understand, she wants a vision of Jesus suffering on the cross. And God grants Julian's wishes. I will focus here on the vision she has of Jesus' suffering. In the middle of that vision, she wonders, did I ask something foolish? She can hardly bear to look at the pain she is seeing. She senses Jesus pinned up like a bug on the cross, dehydrating, calling out, I thirst. And she can't take it. And she says, maybe I shouldn't have asked for this. Then in the vision, Jesus looks at her and says, if I could suffer more for you, I would. At that point, there is a pivot in Julian's reaction. Pivot from sorrow and anguish to an overwhelming sense of how much she is loved. She comes to understand the great suffering is driven by an even greater love and wants to call out, what wondrous love is this? In her, in her vision, Jesus says, it is a joy, a bliss, an endless delight that I suffered my passion for you. Christ's hunger and thirst is his longing for us for her that persists and endures. And so, my brothers and sisters, today I commend Julian's testimony to you. Let us let that sink in and realize that in Christ, God loves us with all God's being, does not hesitate in this love but embraces it even in the darkest of night. God grant to us that with Julian, we too can make the pivot that realizes God earnestly desires to give us the bread of life. Jesus himself is this living bread. I hope that we can grasp this amazing self-giving love. I know this, that though, that no sooner does Jesus give this teaching that a fight breaks out, <laughs> a disagreement, some disputation. How can he give us this flesh to eat? How can he be the bread that comes down from heaven? Isn't this Jesus? Isn't this the carpenter's son? And sad to say, too, that our own church, the Christian church, has fought over the meaning of this from time to time over its long history. 
Oops. It would be easy for me to condemn this disputation. But in some ways, this contention over what is the bread of life may help us to try and discover the fullness of Jesus' teaching. As Episcopalians, yes, we have engaged in this con controversy. The Catholics and the Anglo-Catholics among us hold that at the Eucharist, a change comes over the elements and the bread and the wine become the substance of God's grace. The Baptists and the Memorialists hold that God is present not in any kind of substance, but in our memory. And Martin Luther tries to split the difference between them and say, little of both. Holding somehow that Christ is present in the Eucharist in a special way. Thomas Cramner, the author and compiler of the English prayer book, also tries to navigate a middle path. And I note that we have amongst us here today former Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, all variety calling, and we're trying to gather us all together and understand this living breath. But in addition to carving out the middle path that he does, Cramner also reframes the question not having to do with the question, do the bread and the wine change or do they stay the same? And he wants us to ask, does it change you? When you eat of the living bread, are you more full of life? Are you more full of love? When you take of my self-giving love that I'm giving you in this bread, are you going to turn and nourish other people? And I'll close with a story, Baptist story, <laughs> uh, reflecting my own heritage. I had a wonderful Baptist campus minister when I went to the University of Florida. His name was Otto Spangler. And if I were to ask Otto, what's your sweetest thing? I know his answer immediately. Crumb it up. And you might go, what the heck is crumb it up? Well, crumb it up is when you have leftover cornbread from the night before, and you take it and you crumble it up into a pitcher, and you pour milk over it, and you let it sit overnight or over the day. And he said for him, crumb it up was his comfort food. He'd come in from a hard day. There it was, crumb it up, ready to sustain you. He'd come in jilted by his girlfriend, crumb it up, lots of crumb it up. That <laughs> and he would, for him, crumb it up was like Jesus. It was the nourishing 
living bread full of all of the associations of his history and that fed him body and soul. So I would encourage you to ask, what is your guava jelly that sustains you? What is your chromata? What is the bread of life for you as we prepare to come to the table and partake of this living bread? Now, at the beginning of this sermon, I had the sweetest thing I know on my lips, guava jelly. And I want to end the sermon by having a work, something on your lips. What is the most joyful word that we have in our liturgy? It's got to be hallelujah. Maybe Hosanna close second, okay? But hallelujah. And I want you to, um, when I call out and say, Jesus is the living bread, come down from heaven, you'll respond, hallelujah. Jesus is the living bread, come down from heaven. Hallelujah. Jesus is the living bread, come down from heaven. Come on with strength now. Jesus is the living bread come down from heaven. Hallelujah. Oh, sweet Jesus, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, God, for this living bread.